Are you successful today? What measure do you use to measure success? You know, the world may measure success by profit, you know, how much you're earning, or by prosperity, what you own, or how's your health, by prestige, how high are you in the, the corporate ladder, or what do people think about you? But in reality, when we pass away from this world, which will happen, and when we stand before our maker, how does God measure success? We'll see from Revelation 3 that God measures success by faithfulness. How faithful are you to God? So we've been looking at the, the seven churches in, in Revelation for the past uh, couple of weeks. And, and today we come face to face with the Lord's letter to the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you, O Lord God, for the opportunity for us to come before you and to come before your word. We pray that you would remove all distraction, that we would attentively, O Lord, listen to what you have to say, for you are calling out. We pray that your spirit work in our midst, for we pray this in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. See, the church in Philadelphia is a, is a little church, as stated in verse 8, that it has little power. It doesn't mean that the church is powerless. No church is powerless if it has the Holy Spirit in it. It means that the size of the church is small. It's a, it's a little church in Philadelphia in Asia Minor. And in this letter to this church, like the church of Smyrna, there are no warnings, no condemnation or threats or judgments that come out from the, the mouth of our Lord. There's no criticism from him. So here in, in the sixth church that is given, we find a church that is pleasing to the Lord, acceptable to the Lord. This is a church that is faithful. 
So when you hear the word faithful, what comes to mind? What, what are the words that come to mind when you think about the word faithful? Loyal? Constant? Devoted? Unswerving? Staunch? Steadfast? Dedicated? Committed? Are these, are these words that come to your mind when you think faithful? They should be. You know, even though we know it's impossible for us Christians to be perfect, since we all fall short, it is very possible for us to be imperfect and yet acceptable in the eyes of our Lord. It is possible for us to be faithful. You see, Philadelphia is a, is a young city it, it, compared to the other six cities. And it, its name means brotherly love. And the city's founder, Eumenes II, the king of Pergamum, named it after his favorite brother, Adelus II, whose loyalty and faithfulness earned him the nickname Philadelphos, literally meaning one who loves his brother. And so the city gets its name from that nickname. It was a city rich in agriculture because of the, the volcanic ash in that area. And the area was prone to earthquakes, um, volcanic eruptions. It was hit by two powerful earthquakes, one in AD 17 and one in AD 60. And we know based on history that the emperor Caesar Tiberius helped rebuild the city. So a monument was made to him and, and he was worshipped. There was emperor worship that existed in the city. Now we don't really know a lot about the church at Philadelphia. It was probably one of the churches founded during the spread of the gospel in Asia Minor in, in Acts 19, verse 10. And we know that through some church historical writings that Ignatius, who was a disciple of John, passed through this church in Philadelphia on his, uh, on his way to martyrdom to Rome. And that there were some believers from Philadelphia that were martyred along with Polycarp, another disciple of John, in Smyrna. Now, we know that this church stood firm and, and it endured for a, a very long time until the whole region was overrun by the followers of Islam in the 13th and 14th century. Just like every other letter to the churches, this starts out with a majestic declaration of who it is that's speaking. The resounding answer is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. There are four descriptions used here. When Christ describes himself specifically to a church in any of his letters, it has everything to do with the context of, of the letter. And it is an apt and appropriate description for the church receiving it. And it reinforces what is going on in that context, and these descriptions apply. So the first description, he's the holy one. Who is holy? Who is holy? There's only one, and that's God. There's only one who is holy. And thereby Jesus here, when he, de when he declares this, he's declaring that the author of this letter is none other than God. Christ, who is the head of the church, is God himself. We were reminded this morning about in Isaiah 6, you have the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. And here Jesus is the Holy One. He is God. He is so dazzling that the, the, the shining seraphim are the ones that before Him shield their faces in their wings. This is the Holy One. Christ was declared as the Holy One in Mark 1 when the demons see Him and say, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A title that is common for the Messiah. Here is one who is completely separated from sin and his character absolutely flawless. Christ also describes himself as the true one. This shows for us one who is authentic, real, genuine. With all the error and falsehood in the world, Jesus Christ is the truth. And, and, and he's the absolute standard. And against that truth, does everything get measured, measured? And all lies fall short. Here you have the Holy One, the True One. Thirdly, he's mentioned as the one who has the key of David. What does that mean? Throughout Scripture, when you see anyone holding keys of any sort, it shows authority. Christ is referenced as one who comes from the line of David. And it is from the line of David that the Messiah is to come, the Savior of the world. In Isaiah 22, 22, we see a similar reference to the one who holds the key of David. It says in Isaiah 22, 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. In that specific context, it was referring to Eliakim, the prime minister to Israel's king. And in his role, he controlled access to the top leader. He controlled access to the treasuries. He controlled, he had authority. And in that reference, Eliakim is referenced as the Lord's servant. And when we look at the book of Isaiah, we are aware that there are the, the four servant songs that are mentioned in that book that are prophetic mentions of this servant, this Messiah who is, the, who is going to come. And so you have here an historical pattern. And as the holder of the key of David, Jesus is the only one who has authority to determine who enters his kingdom. So our Lord is the Holy One. He is the true one, the one who holds the key of David. And it says he is the one who opens, and when he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. What does that imagery paint for you? Sovereignty. You know, in, in Isaiah 43, 13, the Lord declares, Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Who can turn it back? Whatever the Lord chooses. See, Jesus is the one who has complete control over the kingdom and its resources. And in chapter 1, verse 18 in Revelation, we see that Jesus holds the key of Hades and death. And here he has the key of David. This is Christ exalted to the highest. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Without Christ, no one can enter the kingdom of God. And Christ encourages the Philadelphia church, stating that it is he who has opened a door before them, a door that no one can shut. It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and, bef and down before you 
and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. See, the Lord reminds the church, I know you. I know you. He knows all that they're going through. He knows their number. He knows all of it, the persecution. And he knows that despite the fact that they have endured much suffering, that they have kept his word, and they have not denied his name, they were bearing the marks of mature, true Christian believers. You see, in in Philadelphia, there was a Jewish population, uh, large enough to have a local synagogue, a local Jewish synagogue. And, And here Christ says, occupied by Jews, who said they were Jews, but are not. Hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that they weren't Jews, or were they Jews? Like, what's happening here? And to actually, you know, understand this, we've got to remember Romans chapter 2 to grapple with the language and the tone used here. In Romans 2, 28, 29, Paul is quite clear that for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly and not outwardly. So by this tone, you have Christ who's saying, those people who gather there in that synagogue... They say that they're Jews, but they're not. It's a lie. It's a synagogue of Satan. And in John chapter 8, we see Jesus saying to the leaders of Israel, you're of your father, the devil. If you remember that that, uh, verse. They were Jews claiming to be Jews, Jews, but they were not true Jews either. Their father was not God. Their father was Satan. The same applies to this group here in Philadelphia that has been persecuting this church. See, the very fact is when you look, our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles were persecuted by who? The Jews. They say they're Jews, they're not. They lie. They claim it, but they're not. They're not true sons of God. They're not true sons of Abraham. They may have been Jews, ceremonially or, or legally or genetically, but they were not Jews spiritually. Then the Lord makes this promise. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Jewish people from a synagogue bowing down to, a gen- to Gentiles and learning that it is the Gentiles that the Lord Jesus loves, that God loves. That's a unique situation there. What does he mean? When you look at that, it's a picture of humility, a picture of defeat. And when you look in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45, 14, it's ironic. It says, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush And the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. And this is a passage to the Israelites that God is saying, that the Gentiles are going to come bowing down to you. 
a picture of humiliation from the Gentiles' perspective. And Isaiah makes this reference several times, and again in chapter 49, he says, Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And again in chapter 60 and verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Gentiles who are the church are going to have Jews bow down to them. Gentile rulers have always tried to make the Jews bow. But here the Jews do the bowing. And this is a picture of, a strong picture of humility and acknowledgement. You know, that the, the Jews would bow down, realizing that this church that they were persecuting is right. That's acknowledgement. That this church was the keeper of the truth. That this church was the one that followed the truth all the time. That this church was loved by the Lord. Salvation would have come to the Jews in Philadelphia. And that's what we see when the Lord says, I have left an open door before you. When we look in Acts 14, 27, we see this. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this imagery of an open door shows that the gospel news is spreading. God has been saving Jews and Gentiles. And in the future, at the end of the age, the Jews will believe. Romans 11 says, and they will come and they will bow down. In, in 13, 14, it says, a blessed Gentile church will be used by God to provoke Israel to jealousy, and to salvation. So you have a picture here, we know through the New Testament, where Christ comes to Israel. They reject him. Comes to the Gentiles. The gospel is preached. They accept him. And in Romans 11, it shows you, Paul paints the pictures that the Jews will look at you, church, and in jealousy, come down and repent and be saved one day. And we w so we went through this description of the Lord, and so I want to kind of tie these things together. So you have the Jews in Philadelphia. You have the church in Philadelphia. And the Jews stand there saying, hey, we follow the thrice holy God. We follow what is true. We are part of the kingdom of God. Hey, it is by definition the fact that we are Jews, we are God's people. And they point to the church and they say, you are blasphemous. Your existence shouldn't even be there. And Christ starts off with what an introduction. He reminds the church, I'm the Holy One. I'm the Holy One. Though they say, though they persecute you, I'm the Holy One. You are following the Holy God. He says, I'm the true one. You are following the truth. You are in the right. He says, I am the one who holds the key of David. I am the one who has authority and sovereignty over the kingdom. So even though those folks there in the synagogue who have persecuted me, who have rejected the truth, who follow Satan and his lies, this is the truth, and I want to encourage you. 
And how does this look like in the secular world? You know, we have people that will look at us and say, you don't have truth. You're living a, a delusional life. I want this to be an encouragement that Christ says that he is the true one. And the same challenge is something that you will face when you converse with people from other religions. The God that you're following, that Jesus, he's not God. Christ here says, I am the Holy One. I am the Holy One. And you see, as Christ speaks to this church in Philadelphia, that's small. Might have been as small as this, or maybe smaller. And he encourages them that they're going through this persecution. He highlights these characteristics. They kept the Lord's word. We see that mentioned here. They did not deny his name. They endured patiently. So I was trying to think of an illustration that um, would kind of fit this. And I was reminded of Moses, you know, what does a faithful church look like? What does someone who's faithful look like? You know, people could look at Moses and say, well, he actually interacted with two generations. Two generations. He was a leader. His ministry could bring Israel to the point of decision. But at the end of the day, each generation had to make a choice. Each of them themselves. Moses could not decide for them. See, it was not through Moses' failure that, he, that the first generation turned away, nor was it by Moses' skill and success that the second turned to the Lord. What you see here is a man who was faithful to the ministry. He was steadfast. He led, but one decided to reject the Lord, another decided to embrace him. What does enduring patiently look like, brothers and sisters? You know, I was thinking about this. When you think about enduring patiently, when you think about being faithful and following the Lord, it comes to a point where you serve not because there's an intrinsic benefit to you, but because God has called you to that you continue to rejoice always, not because it's easy to rejoice when you're suffering, but because God has called you to. That you continue to preach the word of God, not because of the, the potential of people following it, but because God has called you. That you continue to love one another, not because they will love you back, but because God has called you to it that you would continue to uphold the name of Christ in public, even if you are persecuted for doing so, but you do it because God has called you to it. That you would continue to pray ceaselessly, even though you're discouraged because God has called you to it. This is what it means to persevere and be faithful. Though in the momentary it will be tough, in the eternal there's many a blessing. See, there's, uh, there's an illustration of an elderly preacher who was rebuked by one of his deacons uh, one Sunday morning before the service. He said, Pastor, said the man, 
Something must be wrong with your preaching and your work. There's been only one person added to the church in a whole year, and he's just a boy. The minister listened, his eyes moistening and his thin hand trembling. I feel it all, he replied. But God knows I've tried to do my duty. On that day, the minister's heart was heavy as he stood before his flock. As he finished the message, he felt a strong inclination to resign. After everyone else had left, that one boy came to him and asked, Do you think if I worked hard for an education, I could become a preacher, maybe perhaps a missionary? Again, tears welled up in the minister's eyes. Ah, this heals the ache I feel, he said. Robert, I see the divine hand now. May God bless you, my boy. Yes, I think you will become a preacher. Many years later, an aged missionary returned to London from Africa. His name was spoken with reverence. Nobles invited him to their homes. He had added many souls to the church of Jesus Christ, reaching even some of Africa's most savage chiefs. His name was Robert Moffat, the same Robert who years before had spoken to the pastor that Sunday morning in the old Scottish Kirk. You You see here, This church in Philadelphia, small, in the eyes of those around, feeble. In the eyes of those around, oh yeah, we can extinguish them. But the Lord says, he doesn't say that they were fruitful. What does he say? You have not denied my name. You've kept my word. You've endured patiently. Brothers and sisters, I think it's it is a good reminder for us to continue to persevere. You know, there was, um, I'm reminded of the story of William Booth. He was greatly stirred by the needs of the poor of London. He realized that most churches were doing nothing to reach the undesirables, the the drunkards, the, the morphine addicts, the prostitutes and the poor. And he set out to reach them with what he called the three S's. Uh, soup, soap, and salvation. And thousands were saved among those that most churches had no interest in reaching. And Booth gave his life for the cause of reaching others. And in his 80s, Booth's work began to be hindered by blindness. He briefly lost his sight and then recovered it, but later he lost his vision permanently. His son, Bramwell, came to bring him the bad news that he would never see again. Booth replied, God must know best, Bramwell. I've done what I could for God and the people with my eyes. Now I shall do what I can for God and the people without my eyes. You see, the Lord calls his church to be faithful. Whatever capacity that you're in, to be faithful. And here Jesus promises this church some beautiful things. The first promise is that the overcomer will be a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out of it. See, here you have the synagogue of Satan, these Jews who say you have no place with God. With all of that persecution, here Christ says, listen, I'm going to give you a permanent place. You are going to be a pillar. You who are little, you are going to be a pillar, one that supports strength, unmovable in the temple of God, and you will never go out of it. They have promised a permanent place in God's temple. 
And we are reminded in, 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 again, the imagery goes back to Isaiah 56, 62, and 65. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. To those who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which shall not be cut off. For a memorial of this church is given a place which goes in line with the second promise that Christ gives them. It's a threefold repetition of a name being written on this pillar. The second promise is this new name, a threefold name. The first name is the name of my God. It means to belong to Him, to be of His child. You see, our adoption is mentioned in Romans 8, and the Old Testament teaches that every Israelite had the name of God placed on himself or herself. Again, compare and contrast. That's what the Jews are saying. Hey, we have the name of God. Here Christ says to this church, no, I will give you a name. It will be the name of my God on you. And this is the name that is in a position, if you look in Revelation, to the, the name of the beast on its followers. And the second name here is the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. See, the closest parallel is the Roman practice of citizenship, often attached to cities. You say, Paul of Tarsus. Thus, this speaks of citizenship in the new kingdom of God. It's like saying, Nishant of New Jerusalem. See, Christ is saying, not only are you going to be a, the child of God, not only are you going to be in the temple of God, I'm going to give you the name of the city. Your citizenship is secure. You know, the third name given here is, that is promised to believers is Christ's new name. The overcomer will be identified with the Lord's inherent glory. And John Phillips has stated this. There are mysteries of beauty, of brilliance, and of blessing in Jesus, not yet revealed to a wandering universe. As when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon and said, Behold, the half was not told me. But something of that unknown glory will be written into the shining countenances of the overcomers. His old name was Jehovah. How much that name unfolds. His present name is Jesus, and what a volume of revelation there is in that. As for his new name, I had not seen, nor ear had heard, neither had entered into the hearts of man the things which God had prepared. For them that love him. See, there is going to be a new name. A new name given to Christ that we don't have access to. But what a joy when Christ says, this glorious name shall be given to you as well. Every small church in a difficult area of ministry should find this letter encouraging. Every Christian uncertain about his or her gifts and place in a church as a whole will be comforted. The basic message is profound. God is more interested in faithfulness. That is what being successful would look like. 
when we get to heaven, the greatest rewards may well be for the kind of Christians who persevered in situations like that in Philadelphia, who remained true to the Lord in an extremely difficult situation, who never denied his name, who kept his word, and who persevered patiently. Let him who hears me hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to NLBC. Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for your precious word that discloses us to us, O oh Lord, that, that reveals to us your heart. We thank you for the encouragement that we see. That your son is the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the key of David, the one who opens doors and no one can shut, the one who shuts doors that no one can open. And Father, for those of us here who are redeemed, oh Lord, you have invited us into your presence. You have invited us into your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, as we look at this small church in Philadelphia, that today, thousands of years later, we are reminded of their faithfulness, and we are challenged. We are challenged that we would never deny your name, that we would continue to patiently endure that we would remain faithful, that we would keep your word in every capability that we would obey your word. And Father, we pray, O oh Lord, for the many who aren't here. We pray for their safety. We pray, O oh Lord, that your presence be made known to them. And we pray for NLBC, O oh Lord God, this is your church. And this is your word. And your spirit resides in us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in all of this, you be glorified. In Jesus Christ's precious and holy name.